بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما الحمد لله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله we've been having these conversations these last few podcasts and I think a lot of people have really enjoyed them so in in, in that light I thought we'd continue on I, I really had an amazing uh, time with uh, Tobias Tubbs and, and Anthony Samadani and then we had Harun uh, Sugic who I, I actually had become Muslim with back in 1977 who's really a, an extraordinary person somebody um, who just I love dearly and I mean, one of the great blessings of Islam is that you you have people that are your brothers for 40 50 years like I think about the Prophet's life and one of the things that most I find really so wonderful about the Prophet's life is that all the people that were with him at the beginning were with him at the end and that never happens like if you look cults like they always fall apart you know the leader gets exposed the charlatans you know they get exposed and then people leave them disgruntled whereas the Prophet's life I mean they were willing to die for him to protect him. Zubair, he was literally catching arrows. Abu Ubaidah, he lost his front teeth. Um, the Arabs call that ahtam in Arabic. Hatma is the woman who loses a front tooth. And they said that he was the most beautiful of men. Hatman. Hatman. Like the most beautiful men without front teeth. So these are, I think, some of the blessings of the brotherhood and sisterhood of our faith is that if, if you love somebody for the sake of Allah that love just continues on Imam Malik one of my favorite quotes from Imam Malik is he wrote this book called Al-Muatta which means the well-trodden path it's the path that many have gone down on and he was according to the dominant opinion he was from the Tabi'a Tabi'in which are the followers of the companions uh, followers of the followers of the companions. And so he had over 600 teachers that were from the followers of the companions. That's another beautiful quality of our religion is that the Prophet did not have disciples. He had companions. They were his ashab. And he called them ashab. He called us his brothers. Ikhwani, ikhwani. In the hadith, I mean, think of that. He didn't say atba'i. He said, Ikhwani, my brothers. And he said, if I was going to take a friend, I would have taken Abu Bakr as my friend, but what I can, al ukhuwa you know, but the brotherhood of Islam. But the brotherhood, he's my brother. So this is, I think, one of the great blessings is just to know somebody for all these years. And that love, Imam Matic, my, my point about Imam Matic is that he wrote the Muatta, and then this man, uh, he had a Munafis, I won't mention him, he was a scholar in his own right, but he had a Munafis, uh, somebody who was envious of him, and the kind of Qabul, the acceptance that he had received from the people. And so he basically said, um, he made his own Muatta, and then somebody else made a Muatta, and so one, they were sitting with Malik and some radiallahu Imam Malik, and one of the uh, people said, "Katharat uh, muwatta'at." There's a lot of muwattas out there these days, and so Imam Malik said his famous thing. He said, "Ma kana li la dama wa tasl, wa ma kana li ghairi la in qat'un fasl." That what is for the sake of Allah will continue and be connected. It, it'll the, the the chain will have links and they won't be broken. And he said, but what's for other than Allah will always be severed and end, come to an end. So friendships that are based on other than Allah don't last. Friendships that are based on love of God will always last. And they say, Imam Ali said that no people will come together for a ma'asiyah except that they will end up having animosity towards one another. And there's lots of films that show that they rob a bank or something and then after that they're all shooting each other so i'm here with my brother sidi feridun who who i've known him now for 
Is it 28 years? Yeah, 28 years. So Feridun is from the Mujeddidi family. And for people who don't know, uh, the Mujeddidi family are the people of from Ahmed Sirhindi, who was considered the he was from the 11th century. He's called the Mujeddid Elfthani, the renewer of the second millennia, millennia of uh, the second millennium of Islam, and uh, he was he was from India, and he was a Faruqi. So in other words, he was a direct descendant of Sayyidina Omar. His most famous work is called Al Maktubat which he wrote in Arabic and Persian. And he's famous for really being one of these people that brought the sharia and the haqiqah into a, a very healthy balance. So uh, there was a lot of extravagant, ecstatic Sufism at the time, and in India in particular because of the Hindu influence. They, uh, there was a lot of a kind of pantheistic approach and a, a misunderstanding of a concept called wahtatul wujud, this idea of the oneness of being, and somehow that God was all of this, which is really a type of materialism. And so he actually introduced the idea of wahtatul shuhud, the oneness of, of witnessing, like seeing the tawheed behind all of the diversity. Because the creation is obviously the creation, and the creator is the creator. And these are two completely uh, separate things. They can't be seen as being interpenetrated. So anyway, uh, Freydun and I have been working together for a very long time, but he actually started the uh, Islamic Studies uh, School in Hayward. We used to say Hayward, you know, the, the Hay of the Roses, the neighborhood of the Roses, Hayward, California. So... Um, Maybe you could talk about some of the, just a little bit of that early history because I, I do have something that I do want to talk about today, but maybe just hear from you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sallallahu ta'ala ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. It's an honor being here, sitting with you, Shaykh. Jazakallah khair. The Islamic Study School was a very small, tiny place, uh, about 800 square feet, uh, 25815 Mission Boulevard. We used to teach uh, just the little kids how to pray. And we had a good friend of ours, Qari Amin, who was a Hafiz of Quran, young man, and was teaching them Quran and you know just to learn how to read the Quran. And just when we were busy with that, as young people, we were in college, all of us, and uh, these were things we were doing on the weekends. And um, in 1994, we kind of expanded to 25825 because it was a bigger place became available next door. It was 2,000 square feet, and so we said, let's move there. And we didn't know why we were moving there. We didn't have that many students. Maybe like 15, 20 people would come. So we moved there, and then we were, all of us, we were attending all your classes and your lectures back in, in the 90s, in those 1993, 94 and in December 1st, 1994, I remember you give the lecture at Shibo College through the student, the MSA, sponsored, and you talked about Surah Al-Rahman. And so that's also the night one of my very good friend, who was not a Muslim yet, Justin Benavides, he took his shahada right after your talk in the, in the, in the hallway. So he said, I'm ready. So he, he took his shahada. Uh, Abdurrahman Benavides yeah. now getting his PhD. PhD, Allah Akbar. So things started to happen. A lot of people came, we came together based on your teaching and we were really mesmerized by it and it really affected us in, in a beautiful way. And then we invited you to come to teach at the Islamic Study School. And all honestly, I don't know up to now why you said yes and because we were, nobody knew of the, of the institution that we had. It's a very small little place in Hayward, Nobody really cared about young people doing anything back then. And we were not a masjid. So if you're not a masjid, there was no... <laughs> right. Well, one of the things, and we talked about this before, but the when I was in the, the UAE um, as a student, and then I, I had a very good relation with um, Sheikh Bashir Shakfa from Syria, a beautiful teacher of mine. And he, after I had memorized some of the Quran the last 
portions of Quran uh, with the uh, when I was at the Mahadri Tsunami, and then I'd learned you know ahkam salah tahara all those things. So he actually got me a position as an imam. I was first a muaddin in uh, Masjid al-Mu'tarat, which was the major masjid. So I called the adhan there for a year. And then he gave me a small mosque as the imam. So I was an imam in one of the small mosques. And they were all Afghan uh, workers. And at the time, they were like going off. They'd, they'd work and then go fight the Russians. Then they'd come back. And um, so I was praying Maliki style So because my teachers at that time were Mauritanians. And I was studying Maliki fiqh with them. And I was living with Sheikh Hamad Amr al-Wali. In a, we had a little uh, ha- a t- tiny house right next to the masjid. It was actually part of the masjid. And we were in at this date grove, which had this beautiful water trough. It was huge, so you could swim in it uh, that, that watered the dates. So the Afghans all took care of the dates. So they would come and pray, but they didn't trust me because... You know, they're staunch Hanafi. They'd ro- always roll up there. <laughs> That's the Afghans. <laughs> they would always roll up there, you know, to make sure that the, um, it was over, the ankle was showing, and they had their turbans and everything. So they'd see me pray, and then I I left my hands at the side. So they thought maybe I'm Shia or something. I don't know. So they went and got this sheikh, Jalaluddin, um, who came, and uh, and then he, he, like, he gave me this test, so he's asking me all these questions. He was actually, I think, a learned man because I actually we became friends, and I'd go visit him, and he he knew a lot about hadith, and he had a, he was an imam in another masjid, but they trusted him, so he basically gave me the seal of approval. And at that time, I used to always wear the Afghan, the hat, the pakol, yeah, even in the early days, so, yeah, when I came back. So I always I liked that hat, but I used to wear that pakol hat. Um, and because they, they would give me these hats and give me uh, Afghan turbans, so the Afghans when they invited me <laughs> to come to Hayward Islamic School yeah. and teach, you know, it wasn't. So there was that connection. But there we was did, a connection but we before, didn't know yeah, because I was four years. I was with yeah. the Afghans there. We didn't. So know, I got to know them yeah. pretty well, and Nemi yeah. Fahmam. You know, like <laughs> That's a brilliant story. <laughs> Yeah, so we were unaware of that connection, but it, it really took a lot of hearts from our side to just to approach you. And then you opening your house, I remember we came to the Santa Clara apartment and, you know, Yahya just took his shahada. He was there. Yeah, he wrote us. Otis, yeah, he was in your house. He was memorizing his alphabet flashcards. Yeah, mashallah. Um, so it, it, it was, and then you, uh, we, per, we, we had a 12-week course that we, put in like week one week two week three based on our understanding and we just gave it to you said this is a proposal for a 12-week course at mm-hmm. islamic study school and we just took it and i said okay he's just going to say no we walk out no hard feelings and then he said can i change some of these topics and we we're all like then you just changed this and then you did basically islam iman ihsan mm-hmm. and in the 12 weeks and so we took that back we typed it we came out and we were on Cloud nine, so that's when the everything started, and so your first that was ninety five. That was in the beginning of ninety five, yeah. Mm. So the first class you taught, and then the next semester two classes, and then that's where the seerah purification of the heart uh, classes were taught. Also, every semester you taught uh, grammar. You know the best class that I remembered of that time, which is unfortunate that we lost i think some of it but it was the khurafa rashid uh, yeah the last it was uh, the last we had yeah. and that there were so many extraordinary moments in that class amazing i remember the day that we did uthman it turned out to be the day that he had I, had been murdered yeah, yeah. And it wasn't planned. It just you can't plan those. You, stuff. Yeah. So there were lots of things like that, and there was a lot of tears in the class. It was just a really beautiful class. But unfortunately, we didn't. We weren't able to. Yeah. To. Um, there was a lot of uh, the the production at that time. Obviously, we were we were ahead of everybody, uh, but still, it was primitive compared to what we have now. Today. Digital technology mm-hmm. wasn't. Yeah. Still, we were recording on that like digital audio tape. Yeah. And, uh, and then we brought Sheikh Khatri. So yeah. I, I, and that was one of the things that happened in, in at, at Islamic Study School. First time people actually experience 
someone like Sheikh Khatri coming in with his dara and, and you remember when he walked into the class, it was just everybody was awestruck. Sheikh Khatri, mashallah, he's he's he just had heba. Yes, yeah. heba, and he's mashallah tall and hand, his face beautiful is face illuminated yeah. with mashallah. nur and. Yeah. And then he came in, and you remember the student who broke down and couldn't stop crying. Yeah, just you know, just seeing him. Yeah, just seeing him, and he taught. He, he you translated for him, and, right? And many other scholars they came. And, and then Sheikh Ahmed, uh, Sheikh uh, Abdullah ibn Dahmedna. Yeah, you know, one of the most amazing experiences for me. I really understood the meaning of faqih with him because we we were sitting, and a convert woman came up, and she said, "Can I ask a question?" I said, "Sure." She said, you know, my brother's a homosexual and all these Muslims are telling me to cut off ties with him. He's not a Muslim. We've been close and he's always been very good to me. And, and I just want to know, you know, what the ruling on that is because I'll do what Islam says. So Sheikh Abdullah Wildahmedin was there and I really was hesitant about translating it but because I, I thought he would just, react in a very so i i basically translated verbatim what she said into arabic and he didn't even flinch like there was no nothing on his face that would indicate that he was repulsed by the question or anything he just said no no, no t- tell her that they're wrong that that she shouldn't break off ties with her brother he's not a muslim he said you know the the branches of Sharia are not incumbent on him, and that's not considered kufr. You know, it's it's sinfulness for us, but it's not considered kufr. But for him, until he accepts Islam, that's his own private business. So tell her not to break off ties with him. I just realized he was a faqih. I mean, that is, that's what a faqih is. They, they don't bring emotion into it. And so often we, we allow emotion to override that other knowledge, which is a, that deep wisdom. And I, I once, I, I got a book on um, suicide bombing that had all these fatwas in it. Every single fatwa was emotional. It really struck me as odd. It was published in uh, one of the Gulf countries. And some of them were, I would consider notable people that people would recognize some of their names but it was all emotional about how muslims were oppressed and how muslim and this was the only tactic they had and and there it wasn't i didn't see a kind of legal reasoning i saw more a type of utilitarianism with emotion infused with emotion and none of them convinced me even at that time because I've always been opposed to that. In 93, I actually gave a talk, 1993, which was called Jihad is the Only Way Out. And, and the proof of it is it actually was published in a magazine that Darul Islam used to publish. And in it, I completely condemned suicide bombing. Back in 93, like I've never believed in that. You know? so, and I used to have debates. I had a debate with uh, Habib Ali about it. In Maurice, we were in Mauritania, and we, we had a long be- debate, and and he disagreed with me. Year, a few years after that, maybe seven or eight years after that, he 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 told me he realized that I was, he thought I was right on that issue. So, yeah, but I just remember that that he was a faqih. You know, but that's really what fiqh is, because even though I mean, obviously, we don't promote these things. We have Abrahamic morality, and this is what we've been told in our deen. But when you have non-Muslims who come into Islam who have relatives and things like that, they have to navigate their family situations. And there's a lot of different problems. I mean, that's just one of them. Now we have a a myriad set of problems that um, really create a lot of confusion for people. I saw a book um, years ago about it that had all these... It was all um, faradiyat, you know, like... um, hypotheticals hmm. and uh i called it science fiction you know because it was all about like if you go to the moon what's the qibla is it just the earth or like is it you know or could you do tayammum over a space helmet on the moon it was it was a crazy book but somebody actually wrote it 
But we need more practical things down here on earth for people to navigate these times because they're so difficult. And the Prophet ﷺ said that in these latter days, he said, that even the sagacious people would become confused. Like people, wise people, and people that normally are unflappable, people that don't get ruffled easily. Al-Halim is can be somebody who has intelligence, like ahlam or intellects, but it's also forbearing, somebody who's patient. So that's where Sheikh Abdullah Walad Ahmed, he came and yeah, he, he with us for a few years, actually. I know. Uh, and he taught many classes taught at MCA. In Santa Clara yeah. and Hayward. They didn't know who he was either. It's really yeah. sad because... His humility. He I had so much humility, yeah. and they just didn't see who he was. But he is a very formidable... I mean, he's a alim, like yeah. a, a true alim. Yeah, oh, mashallah, he is. Beautiful then, akhlaq yeah. too. Just his total, character was total. just so amazing. He Not memorized Al Bukhari in my house. That's incredible. He memorized the whole of, of Al Bukhari in my house. Incredible. <laughs> has memorized it in Medina. Yeah, he told me that. Amazing himma these people have. I made the niya to memorize it. When I was studying, I wanted to memorize the Muatta and the Al-Bukhari. I just didn't have that kind of memory that those people are gifted with. But alhamdulillah, at least I can read it. Alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Then you found the institute, didn't you? Didn't you find when we bought the institute so the, the, on Jackson that, Street? Yeah, so what happened is in, I think, uh, 1996, when you registered... Uh, the Zaytuna Institute was officially registered with, uh, as a non-profit organization. Yeah, with Hisham Because uh, the first three Sayyid officers were Sayyid Hisham Al-Alusi, and then Um Yahya yeah, yeah, was the treasurer. And then I, I was, I think, I can't remember. Yeah. But we did that just as a 501c3. Yeah. And then we started the institute. And I, and I remember also, because the original classes were at MCA, and what happened... I had come back uh, from Mauritania. When I was in Mauritania, people were literally bringing me dying babies. It was pretty intense. And um, I just felt a need to, I wanted to go study some medicine and come back. And so I actually, when I came to back to the U.S., this is after over 10 years being abroad, when I came back, I had a friend who was in um, the Imperial Valley, Hashem Sidat. He, he was a physician. He was a gastroenterologist and, a, and an acupuncturist and a homeopath. He, and he was a really amazing doctor. And he traveled all over. Just He was very interested in all kinds of medicine modalities. But he called me to tell me that um, there was a man there who was visiting him named Bashir Uthman Bashir. And he said to me, uh, I think I have this, this wali in my house, but I can't understand him. Could you come down and translate for me? So I went down and tra- I, I said, who is he? He's from Uritria, but he lives in Medina. I said, what's his name? He said, Bashir Uthman Bashir. I said, I know that man. He's an incredible man. He's really a remarkable person. So I went down and... He was the one that convinced me to stay there and go to nursing school and do this. And I actually studied with him. I used to do rounds with him at the hospital. So I, I was studying there. And Sheikh Bashir, who has an amazing story, because he told me, and Dr. Omar Abdullah Farouk knows this because he was very close to him. He told me that when he was a young man, he was in Uritri, he was a very wealthy man. And he, he had a teacher there, his, his sheikh, told him that the communists are going to take over Uritria. He said, you're going to have to leave. You're going to lose everything, but don't worry. You're going to, you're going to have an opening in, in, in Medina, and you're going to live in Medina, and you'll have a very good life there, and you're going to die and be buried in Baqiya. That's what he told me. As a God is my witness, he told me that. And he said that initially he thought his sheikh was like, what's this, you know, this tradition was called kishf, which doesn't mean he knows the unseen. It's just sometimes there's an unveiling that Allah will give certain people 
So they say things that actually end up happening. It's, it's called a keshif. It's well known, and some people have. Mauritanians know about this because there's people of keshif in Mauritania. It's an unveiling that God gives some people. And uh, so he told him this, and he thought, oh, that sounds so far-fetched. Sure enough, they came. He lost everything. He was a wealthy businessman who had business in uh, Arabia. He ends up going to Medina. He lived. That's where I met him. And then Dr. Omar wrote me a letter, which I have here in, in filed away. He wrote me a letter in Arabic giving me how he died. So he left there. It turned out he had cancer. And we had flown to New Mexico. I flew with him to New Mexico. And I remember when we, the plane landed in Las Vegas. And I said, isn't it amazing how these mountains, they look just like uh, Mecca. And he said, no, 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 don't compare anything to Mecca, like Las Vegas. So I was like, astaghfirullah. This is the adab of the people of Allah. But we, we, we went to, uh, to New Mexico, and then he went back. He was in Jeddah, and he was end up being, in, he was inside uh, a hospital in Jeddah. And his son was with him. This is Bashir, Uthman Bashir. He woke up. He ripped out the IVs. And he said, take me to Medina right now. And Dr. Omar wrote all this in the letter to me. He said, take me to Medina right now. He said, Baba, you're sick. He said, if you don't take me to Medina right now, you're not my son. And so he took him. He did the kalima the whole way. They literally got to Medina and he took his last breath on Yom Jumu'ah. This was at Fajr, Yom Jumu'ah. He was buried at Dhuhr and, and uh, prayed over in the Masjid of the Prophet and, and buried in Baqiyah. It's a true story. I'll tell you another story with Sheikh Bashir, Uthman Bashir. I wasn't planning on going here, but we might as well since we're here. I'll tell you another amazing story about him. I was with Dr. Omar Abdullah Farooq, Sheikh uh, Omar, who... I can testify, like, I think he's the most extraordinary American Muslim that I know. He, and I've known him for 40 years. He lived in Jeddah. He taught, at the, he taught in Arabic for 17 years. He taught, he taught Aqidah in Saudi Arabia for 17 years. Amazing. And uh, he's very well respected by the Saudi. He's a brilliant man. He, I once asked him, is it true you know 17 languages? He said, like, do you count the dead ones or just the living <laughs> But anyway, so he said, we're going to go. We were staying at uh, Sheikh Bashir, Uthman Bashir's house. Beautiful Eritrean man. And uh, so he said, uh, let's go to Badr. We'll go visit Badr. It's an amazing place because I'd never been to Badr. So we're driving to Badr. And I had this cotton robe because I only wore cotton I, I didn't like the polyester when I lived in the Gulf I never wore the polyester robes I always had cotton and uh, I had this really nice cotton robe that I liked a lot so we're driving and on the halfway there to Badr there's a car flipped over it was a it was a, a Chevy Impala very heavy half ton cars and it was flipped over and but it was an accident we were seeing it for the first so he literally pulls over. We jump out of the car. There's three people trapped in this car. There was a big rock. The, ha half the thing was it, was, it was completely flipped over. And there was that Indian music blaring out of it. You know, it was really strange, that, the high-pitched female voices. So it was very surreal. And there was, they, they looked like they were Indian people. Blood everywhere. So... We couldn't, they couldn't get out because the, the, the window was blocked by the rock. So Dr. Omar, I, as God's my witness, it's a true story. Dr. Omar says to me, he probably would be upset with me telling this story, but it's a true story. He said to me, on the count of three, I want you to pull them out. So he literally goes to the back of the Chevy Impala and he says, one, two, three, and then he said, Allahu Akbar, and he lifted this car up. I swear to God, he lifted it up, and the window opened up, and I pulled these three people out of the car. I got blood all over. I was literally covered in blood in this white robe. And we put them in the car, and then there's not enough room for me. 
So he drives off to get them to the hospital. And I'm sitting there next to a car flipped over with blood. My whole robe is covered in red blood. So I look like I've been in an accident. These people would stop on the road screaming, like, are you okay? Like, you know, do you need help? And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm waiting for my friend to come back. Don't worry about me. It just was so strange. But uh, that was, that was a, a true story. So here's where it gets really interesting. <laughs> so I go back and I was really s- sad about losing this robe, which was a cotton robe that was hard to get. You know, I actually had it made um, there. So we get back to Bashir and I've got this bloody robe. And uh, so he told me to give me the robe. So I give it to him. The next day, they gave me back the robe folded up. So I pull it out. Nothing. It was like brand new. I could not believe it. And it was the same robe, which I don't know how he did that. But it was out. He also, he gave me a a beautiful subha uh, before he died. And then he gave me a, a, a piece of the cloth that covered the Prophet's tomb, so Lari Wasallam. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a beautiful man. So, anyway, we, we, we digressed. I know, alhamdulillah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> MashaAllah. So that's, amazing. that's where you met him uh, in America, too. So, so I, I met yeah. him. Well, he's the one that brought me down. So I asked Dr. Sidat, how did you... How did you work out like he's a special man? I mean, he had a presence, undeniably. But he said that, you know, somebody gave him my number to come for treatment. He wanted to get, um, uh, to basically get medical fahus, all the medical tests. tests. So he, he told me that a few days ago, a crate of pomegranates arrived. And he asked him, he didn't know the crate was there, but he asked him, what do you want for breakfast? And he said, Roman. He wanted pomegranates. And Dr. Dr. Sidat told me that he knew pomegranates from Surah Al-Rahman, which he memorized. And so he said, I don't think I've ever had pomegranates in my house, but here I had a crate in the kitchen and that's what he asked for. He asked for Roman. It's amazing. He was a really unusual person. Very, and he loved uh, Western Muslims. He always took really good care of them in Medina. Just you know, mu'allafat qulubuhum, people whose hearts need to be bound to the religion. So, Doctor Sidat was the one who asked you. To yeah, teach. he asked me to go down there, and I was teaching his kids and studying medicine with him, and then he convinced me to go to nursing school, which I did, and then I got the nursing degree. And then I started giving khutbah in the... In the, it, it, in, in the well, I was actually... You know, the there were some students down in Southern California who I think they were influenced by Hizb tahrir and they asked me to come up and give a talk at Cal Poly Pomona. One of them had red hair. Uh, Taymor. Taymor Mirza. He's a really, really interesting, very, very intelligent person. He, I think he learned Arabic. and So he was a student there. So he asked me to come up. And, and so I would do that. But I wasn't, I, I just was never attracted to the type of ideological Islam that you find in, in a lot of these groups. I mean, I don't deny the political aspect of Islam. There is a political dimension to Islam. But it's a very small part of the religion. And the religion can be practiced without it. And for the vast majority of people should be practiced without it, which is clear in the hadith of Hudayfa, which is in Sahih al-Bukhari, that towards the latter days, avoid all the groups. When, you, when the Muslims no longer have that umbrella group, just avoid all the sects. So, and, and also the, the foundational pillars are they're non-political. People try to add as a sixth pillar but that's not true. There's, there's five pillars of Islam, and none of them are political pillars. So it's a religion. It's not a political ideology. And like I said, I'm not denying the dimension, the political dimension, because it couldn't be a revelation if it didn't have that dimension. Moral philosophy is, is first of all, ethics, 
and then it's economics, and then it's politics. That that's, encompasses moral philosophy. So how could you have a revelation that did not give you guidance in all three areas of moral behavior? Because politics is one of them. But, I mean, I would argue that Islam does not bring a specific political form. In fact, Said Nursi, the great Turkish one of the things that they attacked him about is that he saw constitutionalism was something that the Muslims needed to adapt because he was not a muqallid, he was a mujtahid. So he really revived, he saw the end of the caliphate in Turkey, he saw what was happening. Because he actually died, people forget he died in 1960, which is not that long ago. So he was, a, he was so far-sighted, like he really saw. His, his famous... Uh, sermon in Damascus, it's called the Khutbah Damashqiyah, where he talks about the six things that Muslims need to address the modern time. So there are visionaries who really see where things are headed, and they're not necessarily always Muslim. And we have great visionaries. I think Dostoevsky is one of the great visionaries of the, of the modern era. Nietzsche, in a negative sense, I mean, he was a visionary. In fact, there's a very interesting book by Henri de Lubac, which is um, the drama of modern atheism, where he actually uses, he juxtaposes Nietzsche and Dostoevsky as two kind of modern prophets. Prophets not in our sense of the word, but in the sense of people that saw where things were going. And, uh, and he, he sees Dostoevsky as the greater of the two because he goes through atheism and comes out a believer, whereas Nietzsche went through belief and came out an atheist. Very different. So, Said Nursi is a good example. I mean, your great-grandfather was a visionary because he understood also the dangers of a kind of a Sufism that becomes divorced from Sharia, yeah. which is very tempting. That's uh, the foundation of his teaching, is that in the Maktubat he said, Tariqat wa haqiqat khodim shariat ast. Exactly. Tariqat are the servants of Sharia. Exactly. And once, if, if it's flipped, he said, that's not Sufism. That's not exactly. Tasawwuf. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great book that we're, inshallah, Zaytun is going to, going to publish this year. And I hope to get it into English. It's called Lawah al-Fasiyah. Well, you've been, we've been reading it together with uh, Dr. Assad and different people. So I've read it now four times with four different people. And it's, to me, it's, it's such a beautiful work because on the one hand, it's a book of like a, deeply dyed spirituality but but on the other hand it's 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 an incredible critique of what went wrong with tasawwuf because tasawwuf as a science traditionally was understood to be a very important part of islam and arguably imam al-ghazali really puts it at the, as the animating spirit of the religion itself whereas there's a corruption of it that happens. And this always happens in religions. I mean, religions ossify. There's a kind of sclerosis, a spiritual sclerosis that sets in. And, and how do you clear the arteries you know, so that the blood flows again? And that book really addresses that issue. So unfortunately, a lot of people, they associate the science with the perversions and the dysfunctional phenomenon that you see in a lot of the Muslim countries. You know, there's, there's something that um, is well known about the big lie, this idea that, that people have a hard time seeing through big lies because they're incapable themselves of telling big lies, but uh, little lies they can see through. So one of the biggest lies is when you lie about God or you lie about religion, because most average people of faith can't imagine somebody like tricking people about their faith. They, they, they just have such a hard time. Somebody presenting themselves as a pious person, but it's all subterfuge to get ulterior motives. They, because they themselves are incapable of doing that. And so they end up trusting people. But there are red flags. The very first thing that I translated when I got back to the United States was Usul Tariqatina, which was a little text by Ahmed Zarruq to determine a true teacher from a false teacher. So this is something I've been deeply concerned about for a long time. Um, so, but that is, is really important of knowing that you know, there are people, charlatans. I mean, when I was 
Red flags. Red flags. I talk about that a lot. But when I, years ago, there was one of my favorite books was when I was studying Arabic. I was reading the Maqamat, you know, which are is a genre of Arabic that teaches vocabulary mostly. But but it's very beautiful and it's it's Al Hariri is the famous one. But I actually liked Badi'u Zaman Al Hamadani who started the genre. The characters are all religious charlatans, which at the time really bothered me about it because it's because they would get up and give these khutbas about how they saw the prophet in dreams but it was all lies and they would do it to milk people of money or just different things but what i realized was later as i got older and really actually started seeing these type of people in the world that they were warning people that it was basically they were warning that, that there are people out there the abu fath al-iskandaris that will tell lies and tell you they saw the prophet in a dream and do things like that for ulterior motives. So that aspect is... Um, so one of the things that I wanted to um, just bring people's attention to, and this, the last two weeks for me, it struck me, I just have been grieving a lot in the last two weeks about the loss of um, Dr. Dr. Thomas Cleary. And I know you knew him from, you know, from those, those days. I found out about him many, many years ago uh, through Shambhala, because I used to go to this bookstore, Shambhala, and, and, and they published a lot of his work. So I used to buy his books on samurai warrior, uh, tradition, Bushido, some of his books on Zen, because my undergrad degree was in comparative religion. So, and my mother was Buddhist most of my life. So I, you know, I always had an interest. In fact, my grandmother and 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 great uncle were both Southerners who moved to San Francisco in the 1920s because they were interested in Buddhism. So my my great uncle George Fields actually opened Fields Bookstore in 1931, which was a metaphysical bookstore on Polk Street. It's still online, but um, so I grew up, with, you know, with a lot of that. Uh, my my mom had her little song guy she would go to. And so I knew about him from that, but then I read this article about him and it mentioned that he was going to translate the Quran. That's when I wrote him and then he wrote me back and we began to do things together. We did several talks together, which you were part of. I think you helped. Um, but some of them, yeah, slavery and Islam. Yeah, slavery and Islam, women in Islam, what the West can learn from Islam. So I introduced him usually, and then he would he would talk. But he was, I think, one of the most gifted people I've ever known. I mean, I would put him in the top three people that I've known in my life. And um, just an incredibly self-effaced, deeply humble uh, servant. I mean, he really was something extraordinary. But he graduated summa cum laude from Harvard in uh, East Asian languages, so he knew French fluently, he knew Japanese, he knew Chinese. One of his teachers said what he knew in Chinese was the equivalent, because he knew 50,000 uh, ideograms. What he knew in Chinese was equivalent to knowing Greek, Latin, and all the Romance languages combined. So he had access to all these works. So he was translating all these, but then he discovered the Muslim tradition, and he learned Arabic. He knew Pali, he translated from Pali, Sanskrit. He knew Urdu. He knew Persian and then the Asian languages. What really struck me is the first book that I read from the Islamic tradition was the Essential Quran, The Heart of Islam, an introductory selection of readings from the Quran, translated and presented by Thomas Cleary. And I really love his translation. It's there's certain things that you know any translator is gonna disagree with. And you'll see this online. People make comments, uh, he's mistranslates this or he mistranslates he was very specific in why he did things and i think he would have been able to justify what he did it wasn't out of ignorance or even trying to obfuscate or trying to hide something i think he was very intentional in what he did and how he understood things but the notes i really would have loved to have him do more because the notes are his notes are stunning but one of the things is that as i went through and i realized in my book collection after i got the news that he had died i went and collected all of the books of his and i realized i have like around 40 of his books 
in my library. I couldn't believe it. Like, I think I have more of his books than any other English writer. And he just had a huge influence on, on me. And in fact, I, I did the content of character after he did the wisdom of the prophet's life. I'm like, he inspired me to do that. Mm-hmm. Listen to this description that he, I'm, I'm going to break down, so I'll try not to, but listen to this description that he has in his translation. And one of the things I love about his books is that I always, my favorite part of his Asian books, like his Zen books and his Tao's books, are his introductions and his notes. But he saw himself as a translator. This is how he ends the introduction to the prophets, the wisdom of the prophet, sayings of Muhammad wasallam. Authentic accounts of the prophet, and he always called him the prophet, wasallam, and many times would say, peace and blessing be upon him when he spoke. Authentic accounts of the prophet reveal him as a pragmatic man, down to earth, yet brilliantly spiritual, stern in matters of right, yet compassionate and clement, rich in dignity, yet extremely modest and humble, a poignant storyteller, gifted with a keen sense of humor, a manly and valorous warrior who was most kind and gentle with women and children, a diligent worker, a conscientious family man, a good neighbor, a just king. It's just really beautiful. And then people say, oh, he wasn't a king. But if you look at the definition of king, and the thing about Thomas Cleary, you know, Robert Frost said that all of life is discipline, and the first discipline is the acquisition of words. And a lot of people jump on, you know, why are you using that word? Why are you using this word? And they don't know what the words mean. So king, this is from the dictionary, king, noun, one, a male sovereign or monarch, or monarch. So it's not always a milik. It could be just a hakim in English, in English. A man who holds a life tenure, and usually by hereditary right, usually, not always, the chief authority over a country and people. Those are all definitions of king. So it's a perfectly valid description. And I think that's why he chose it, because he certainly knew the hadith very well. And just my own experience with him, I was always struck by the vastness of his knowledge of Islam. But here's one of the things. He described himself as a spy, bringing wisdom from other traditions across the boundaries of people's minds. And he once said to me that Americans can't think about thinking about Islam. So in a book called No Barrier, Unlocking the Zen Koan, when I... Got this book, and I was reading this book. So this is what he says. So here's a book. Somebody who's interested in Buddhism buys the book, and then they're, they're reading the book. So here's what he says. Zen koans are also used for purposes of testing and examining states of mind. Zen teachers use this function of koans to determine students' progress in development of consciousness. Zen students use this function to see teachers and to uncover hidden biases and fixations subconsciously limiting their own minds. Thus, koans can help stimulate the process of growth by revealing the limitation of thoughts and ideas based on subjective assumptions. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I mean, that was very interesting, but what he's trying to do here. This use of koans to test mentalities requires a certain degree of Zen psychological knowledge to apply, but parallel examples of its operation can be obtained with familiar materials. A simple method uses the prejudices of the environment, casually providing appropriate stimuli to observe whether an individual or group is infected with the habitual prejudices of the cultural environment or whether evidence is shown of capacity for independent thought and perception. In a Western milieu, for example, environmental prejudice is easily elicited by reference to Islam. When people with no knowledge of the Quran or usages of the Prophet are ready to offer opinions on Islam as fact, this represents the working of conditioned bias, not the operation of independent cognition. The inclination to accept unverified opinion simply because of currency or familiarity, is a dangerous human weakness 
that is instrumental in self-deception and easily exploited for the deception of others. <laughs> it's just incredible. So somebody is going to be forced to think of themselves reading. I mean, the subtlety of what he just did in that. But So here's this person who's interested in Buddhism, but suddenly he's realizing, hey, I hold all those prejudices about Islam. Right? So here's another example. This is from the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest works of the sayings of the Buddha. It's, it's very interesting what he does on this one. He, these are aphorisms. So in, in the chapter, which is the, uh, the 17th chapter on anger, he has little comments on it. So these are the sayings of Buddha. I actually wrote an article called Buddha in the Quran because I found a really interesting, one of the great heresiologists of Islam, Shebastadi, wrote a book on the different religions. It was kind of a comparative religion book and, and sex. And when he got to Buddhism, he said, if what the Buddha say about the Buddha is true, it sounds like he's al-Khidr. And so I wrote this article making an argument that possibly the Buddha could be al-Khidr. But anyway, that's another story. This is the Buddha speaking according to the, the Dhammapada. And this, again, this is a book, the person that buys this is obviously interested in Buddhism. So he says, this is Buddha. Who is capable of praising one like a coin of finest gold, one whom the knowing praise after finding him impeccable, controlled, intelligent, insightful, ethical, and composed day in and day out. Even the gods praise such a one, even the creator. So here's Dr. Cleary's comment. The name of the last prophet of the Abrahamic tradition who embodied these qualities literally means praised one. Similar descriptions are given in a hymn of the Torah. So somebody's reading that, and they're, mm, who's that? I mean, see, he's like a, exactly what he said, a spy, like crossing the barriers of people's minds, because he said to me once, he said, Americans can't think about thinking about Islam. <laughs> they can't think about thinking about Islam. And then... He did the entire Quran, and then he did two other really interesting books. I mean, all his books are interesting, but this one, Living a Good Life, Advice on Virtue, Love, and Action from the Ancient Greek Masters. So again, somebody who's interested in Greek masters and living a good life decides to buy this book. So when you get to the very first introduction, he says... It was not until the 12th century, 700 years after the sack of Rome, that the rendering of Greek classics into Latin got underway on a broad scale for wider use in Western Europe. They were not translated only from the original Greek at that time, however, but also from classical Arabic versions. By the 12th century, under the impact of Saracen culture in Spain and Italy, Arabic had largely superseded Latin as the dominant learned language of continental Western Europe. The process of transferring Greco-Arabic learning into the domain of late Christendom in preparation for the Renaissance was just beginning. The Arabic versions of Greek classics had been made several hundred years earlier. This translation work reached its peak in the 8th and 9th centuries under the patronage of the Abbasid Caliphate. This massive endeavor was part of a major new Islamic cultural synthesis embodying the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And then he quotes the hadith, seeking knowledge is incumbent upon every Muslim and seek the word of wisdom wherever it may be found. The Abbasids were descendants of the Quraysh, an aristocratic clan of hereditary shrine keepers of Mecca in olden times. The Quraysh were well known for collecting information and artifacts of the religions and beliefs of the peoples of other lands with whom they engaged in trade. Muhammad the prophet, who is said to have welcomed wise men from the east, was himself a member of the Quraysh clan. Up until the zenith of its empire, the Abbasid Caliphate drew its top ministers from the Barmekis, a family of hereditary Buddhist 
priests, and shrine keepers in what is now Afghanistan. So then he has all these, he actually translated them from Arabic, like sayings of Aristotle. Aristotle said, everything has a skill, and the skill of the intellect is choosing well. So he'll give these sayings, but then in the back, he's got his comments. So all the comments, Muhammad the prophet said, my heirs will not divide up a single coin. Whatever I leave besides support for my wives and provision for my workers is charity. Two, Muhammad the prophet said, a time is coming to humankind when the individual does not care whether his gains are ethical or ill-gotten. Muhammad the Prophet said, all the notes are from the hadith. And then Ali said, the least of your duties to God is that you do not use God's blessings to help you do wrong. Muhammad the Prophet said, Ali said, it's really interesting what he's doing. Amazing strategy. It's amazing. Well, he was a great strategician. And then he did living and dying with grace, counsels of Hadrat Ali, which I think you know because you uh, it's very popular with a lot of people. And they're just, they're beautiful translations. So I just, I really felt his loss. You know, may Allah have mercy on his soul and give him a rank amongst the righteous. He was just an amazing human being. And uh, he loved the community. Why don't you, you told me that amazing story because we had invited him when the Dalai Lama after 9-11. So... We we, yeah, we he, were at he, the Dalai Lama he event came that he you came, and yeah and he did he did not like a lot of the ways that Buddhism was practiced because he he didn't see Buddhism as a religion he saw Buddhism as really a it was a technique yeah. yeah he saw it as a technique to free the mind from certain habitual thoughts and things like that but anyway he gave that talk and he quoted Qul Yayuhad Kafirun and Wal Asri his translations of those in front of everybody yeah yeah. It was an amazing event that, that you have put together. Uh, many of the with, people who were Aisha there, Gray over 2,000 people, but Aisha yeah. Gray Henry was there. And a lot of people from actually from Hollywood, actors and yeah. famous people were there. They never, yeah, they never, they, there that, was a whole film. The whole thing got just, you can't even find a photo of it online. It's uh, amazing. And yet we had like Completely 20 cameras suppressed. from all of the... Uh, Completely the suppressed. Channels, they were all there. They were all there. Yeah, Nothing. Yeah. It was and just they didn't amazing. allow us to record, by the way. So we, yeah. we requested. They said, no, it's all being recorded. We'll give you amazing. copies. But one thing that he, after, I was really, because the, the Living Died with Grace, when I read that, and the, 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 the I was really impressed by his, the, the translation and the beauty in this, of, of this book. And so many people, actually, that book helped a lot of people out in their lives so I just went to him he was in the lobby and I sat next to him and I was really shaking it's hard to talk to people at that caliber and I said Dr. Cleary um, I don't have the eloquence of your pen the way you write and this was going to come out it's not as beautiful but I just want to thank you uh, on behalf of myself my family my community for what you've done for our, for us for the Muslims with these beautiful books that you, that and uh, so I was actually sh- really, uh, my voice was trembling, and he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, it's an honor being part of the community. brother." And then he gave me two of his books he had in his bag and signed it and gave it to me. Um, uh, just a beautiful man, very humble. Well, he, he didn't speak much, but he was just, his, he had presence. Just His presence was amazing. amazing. Yeah. Well, he also, he was so deeply troubled by the invasion of Iraq. And I think that's when he really started his work to educate people about Islam because he just, he saw demonization of other people to be one of the worst qualities. And he said every all peoples do it, but he felt the, the Europeans just, and by extension Americans, because a lot of it has to do with simply the power that they possess, the physical power, the, the war power, that it's just created a lot of, just human suffering. And he was a real empath. I mean, he just suffered with people. And so it really troubled him, that demonization of other people. Because he loved uh, Muslim cultures. And he loved all cultures. I mean, he really, he was somebody who just really looked at cultures and had that thing of what uh, Isa, in our tradition, when when they saw the carcass and, and they said, oh, 
how foul its stench is, and, and, and Jesus said, but how white its teeth are. And in the commentary, he, said he looked at the best of the thing. And he actually says in one of his books that that was one of the great blessings that he got from studying Zen tradition was this idea of turning the light inward and not focusing on the negative, but focusing on the positive. And, you know, Peter Sanders, the, the Abul Adim Sanders, the photographer, if you look at his pictures, they're all beautiful pictures of Islam. Like wherever he went, they're just amazing pictures of the most beautiful people. <laughs> These incredible faces of just Muslims all over the world. Full of light. And uh, somebody said to him, you know, you're not showing the Muslim world. It's, you know, you don't show any of the suffering and any of the bombs and any of like Palestine. And he said, there's so many people doing that. He said, I want to show them <laughs> all the beauty that's there, you know. So, subhanAllah. That's one of the things Dr. Cleary said at Harvard. One of his professors said to him, why don't you just do what everybody else is doing? Because he was interested in all these things that, you know, he said, why don't you just do what everybody else is doing? And he said to him, well, if everybody's doing it, it must already be done. <laughs> so, you know, I just, that thing of just looking at the what's good about cultures, you know, just... Seeing the beauty, because even here in America, you know, he mentioned in one of his books, he said, if you watch American movies, you'll think America is just filled with all these horrible things and how horrible. And he said, but there's also, there's good here. There's a lot of beautiful things here. There's all, so you can just focus on all that negativity, but it will take a toll on your body. And he was by no stretch Pollyannish. I mean, I look at, I've repeated this, in different occasions, but it's always well worth repeating that Houston Smith asked Mark Van Doren, who was my father's teacher, can a man be happy knowing all the horrors in the world? And Dr. Van Doren said to him, oh, the happy man is, is not happy because he doesn't know the nature of the world. He, he knows what the world is, but he, he's still happy because he knows that he has a, a moral obligation to be happy because part of the reason why the world is such an unhappy place is there's so many unhappy people in it. And one of the things that Dr. Cleary said is don't grieve over a self-destructive world because it only adds to its victims and it's a victory for the devil because that's exactly what Iblis wants. He wants people to despair. And Allah says, لا تيأسوا من do not despair of the grace of Allah. So no matter how bad things get, there's always, always that hub that people, if they stay connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spiritually, that hub is accessible. It's always there. doesn't matter how bad it gets. Mawlana Rumi said, Khanei shadis dalam ghusta nadaram chikonam. He said, I've turned my heart into an abode of happiness. I don't have any grief because I stayed away from everything that is bitter in this world. Allah. So happiness is in the heart of every human being. The Prophet loved to hear he loved good omens, but if he heard somebody call somebody named Saeed, he would always take it as a good omen of him. Yeah, Saeed, oh happy one, which is one of his names. And when he was born, all of the planets were in the Saad's positions. Saad Saud, Saad, they were all, all the alignment was in the positions of the, the felicitous stars. Named after felicity. The whole creation rejoiced in his birth. We went on a long time. Uh, how long? Oh, okay, not not as bad. I th it seemed like a lot long. We went into Doctor Clear called them time warps, where you experience expansion in time. So. But you know, may Allah have mercy on him. He he was a truly 
great man. He, his brother also, Allahu Akbar. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. Allahu Akbar. That's muafaqat al-adhan. His brother, uh, Dr. Chris Cleary, is also J.C. Cleary, is another brilliant translator. Of uh, He has a Ph.D. from Harvard as well in the same. And uh, just remarkable people. He's very proud of being Irish, too. Great man. Yeah. But his legacy will live. His legacy, what he has yeah. Done. Yeah, so these are... I mean, these wonderful books that he did for the Muslims. I mean, these are the, to me, his books on Islam are the best books to give non-Muslims. Really the best books. Yeah. And we have to, now, Maghrib's in. Alhamdulillah. al-Falah. Come to Falah. How can you not be happy when Allah is calling you, like, to be successful? SubhanAllah.